Hello, I'm Kathy. And I'm Gary, and this is Torah Talk. Welcome to Torah Talk, the intersection of the mundane and the miraculous. Here we have bold conversations about faith, culture, and politics, and where we fit into God's plans in the 21st century. If you could partner with God, would you? In our last podcast, we talked about the true meaning and the context of the olive tree of Israel imagery of Romans 11. These are the verses where Paul describes Gentile believers as wild olive branches who through trust and obedience have been grafted into the natural olive tree of Israel. I told you at that time that in our next podcast, we would talk about those natural branches that were broken off because of unbelief. What does it mean to be broken off? Is that the same as the idea of losing our salvation? Is that even possible? What about the prominent Christian doctrine of once saved, always saved? Is that doctrine biblical? Today, we'd like to try to cut through some of the confusion surrounding these questions. After this, let's talk about the church doctrine of once saved, always saved, and let's talk Torah. For over 25 years, Ezra International has been helping the poorest of the poor Jewish people escape poverty and persecution. In fact, almost 80,000 Jewish people have now returned to Israel with our help. The average cost to rescue one Jewish person is $360. Your gift of just $30 a month over one year can help return a Jewish person to Israel and restore their hope for a better future. Please go to EzraInternational.org and give your best gift today. Okay, Gary, so we've got a topic today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one could stir the waters. <laughs> this could stir the waters. You know, um, uh, I think that it's important that we start from the very beginning and remind our audience that we don't have all the answers. Oh, absolutely. No one really does if they're honest with themselves. Yes. Yeah, so, um, I, you know, I, 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 w- I would ask you a question. I would say, do you think that by the end of this podcast or maybe the next one, because now I've decided we need to go into a next one about I'm this sure topic. Will, yes. Do you think that all of us are going to agree on this subject? <laughs> You know, one of the things I used to to um, run my life by was to know that if you try to please everyone, you will please no one. And uh, you know, we we we're not going to please everyone with with what we have to say. But I hope it uh, inspires people to search it out and and think and open their minds and hearts to this. I, I think that's the most that we can um, expect. And I. I think that's really good. And I want to even use this as a, um, a way of showing people that this is how we approach God's word too. that we, we take, we try to take everything into consideration, taking the big themes, taking the specific verses, the stories, how do they all work together and, and come to some, some conclusions as best we can, knowing that there's still mysteries that God Mm -hmm. has not revealed completely to us. Sometimes we have questions and we're looking at things and it might not be till years later that God then reveals something new to us that kind of helps us understand. You can't be frightened by, by being challenged. You know, it it should take it as a challenge and, and dig, look, seek. That's what God wants. He wants us to seek him out in all these things. I believe that brings him pleasure. And I also think that it's okay if we don't have concrete answers for everything, mm-hmm. that's okay. 
that it is okay. And you know, more importantly, I you know I think of the uh, quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel, who said, "It's not easy to convey what you think. You cannot easy to convey to others what you think, but it's easy to convey to others what you live." And I really think that's what this is all about. We're we're building, um, you know, godly understanding of how to live and to walk out our faith versus the idea of just filling our head with knowledge and doctrine. Yes, yes, definitely. So that actually kind of leads me into where I want to kind of start this discussion today with some kind of foundational ideas that I think will help those of you in our audience kind of cut through some of the murkiness of this particular topic. And one of these foundations is just like, okay, very basic, okay? Let's be clear that our God chose to express himself through the Hebrew people, Mm. okay? He didn't choose the Chinese people. He didn't choose the (laughs) Italian people. Mm -hmm. He chose this Hebrew, Hebraic group of people. And that means something. Okay. Oh, yeah, it means a lot when we get into it. Yeah, and so yeah. it's for, for providing context, you know, so the, the entire, what we know is the Older Testament, you know, written by these Hebrew people, um, the New Testament, some people do question Luke, you know, was he was he a Hebrew? But I tend to think he, he was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but no matter what, they even even when they may have written in Greek, they were thinking Hebraically. That's absolutely true. You know, they were, they're steeped in their Hebrew tradition. They're steeped in Torah. So any honest study of any topic in the Bible must be done with Hebraic eyes. I think it's a must. I think, again, I've, I've said this before, but if if you don't understand what what the original audience was, was seeing, if you don't if you don't know what the word means to the original audience, then you don't know what it means. And so, some of some of what we read was written with the just the assumption that the audience understood. And then over the course of thousands of years, we have lost that context, and that's why we struggle at times. You know, it's no different. I've said this before. It's no different than studying Shakespeare. We can go in and read a Shakespearean play and get something out of it. Okay, mm-hmm. it's not like we don't get anything out of it. But if we have a, if we study the Elizabethan period in England at that time and what was going on politically. We study the language and the culture. We'll get so much more. I've taken classes in college that do just that. So they'll take that one Shakespearean, um, you know, play Mm -hmm. and build all of that context, you know, for it. And you just come away with such a better understanding. So I think that's what I'm I'm trying to get at here. Even when we look at this one particular topic, it's easy just to zero in on, okay, do you believe once saved, always saved? Okay. It's so much bigger. It is so much bigger. Yeah, Yeah. it's so much bigger. Now, I want to also stress with the audience something that we talked about in an earlier podcast, and we were talking about the difference between being a Greek thinker and a Hebraic thinker, Mm -hmm. and we did a whole podcast, so you can go back and see that, but Greek thinking requires us to have correct beliefs, okay? That's what you were just talking about. What we believe matters more than anything else. That's one reason we care about this topic. (laughs) Okay. You know, we want to get it right. We don't want to believe incorrectly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because we're really trained in that way. 
Now, on the other hand, as you just said earlier, and Heschel said, Hebrew thinking, Hebrew culture is focused on what we do. That's right. Okay. So what we think and believe is secondary. It's not that it's not important at all, but it's not nearly as important as what we do. Mm -hmm. So we got to keep that in mind too. So another big difference between Greek and Hebrew thinking is that Greek thinking demands either or choices. You're going to get this right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a black or white. There's, there's your one side of the fence or the other. Right. Okay. And Hebrew thinking doesn't work like that. And it requires a real change in the way we look at things. It requires this paradigm shift that we talk about Mm -hmm. all the time. And that gets us into some ground that's a little uncomfortable for us. Yeah, it can be. You You know, know, I was thinking just a simple example of the lack of understanding. When when I travel to other countries in this thought, I was thinking about our director in Ukraine, and I use an American expression he has a hard time understanding because we, you know, we take it for granted that, you know, we, if I say rule of thumb or something like that, we know what we're talking about, but it doesn't translate well. Raining cats and dogs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so, so if we can think of it that way, that, you know, when, we, when we're reading the scripture and, and the, the meaning is there, the writer knew what he meant to say, and now we're trying to come up, you know, take ourselves back to that culture and that time and, and, and understand what it is exactly what they were they were conveying versus what our, our 21st century modern Western th- way of thinking Greek looks way at, of thinking, Greek way right, of thinking. Right, right. Yeah. You know, and if you look at this Greek way of thinking, we all know because this is how we were trained in school. You have, you get something right or wrong, okay, mm-hmm. th- this or that. Hebraic thinking doesn't work quite like that. Anytime, if you've ever uh, been around a rabbi or more than one rabbi, and they say you have two rabbis in a room, you've got three opinions, right. I'd say maybe four or five or six or <laughs> more, right? Yeah. And, on the um, other hand. You know, on the other <laughs> hand, how many hands do you have exactly. out there, right? So that, that yeah. is very, very common. That's why they have volumes and volumes and volumes of commentary. Mm-hmm. Remember the rabbi showed us that uh, a couple of weeks ago. He had uh, the commentary on the first like First six fo- words of, of, oh, of Genesis. Goodness. He he had, he had, I have a chumash here that, uh, you know, might be about uh, two and a half inches thick and that's the entire Torah. He had one of these that was twice as thick for each book of exactly. the Torah. So, exactly. Yes, it's, so, it's, yeah, so there's a, there are lots of different opinions get put in there because people look at this from a lot of different directions. And that's really, really important. That's mm-hmm. why it makes it really fun when we do our Friday night uh, midrash right. and people bring in different ways of looking at mm-hmm. things. Now, that doesn't different mean that absolutely every thought is is exactly what the original author was trying to say. But it it means that it's probably we need to consider opening up our mind to some more ideas than mm-hmm. just what our Greek mindset has said. This is it and no no else. Right. That's why we have you know, thousands of denominations and churches. If you don't yes, agree sadly. exactly with me, then we cannot sit together, mm. you know, um, on Sunday morning or when, you know, whatever. Um, so, so I want to just remind the audience that, you know, I think the reason we squabble over this topic or any biblical idea or truth is because we're approaching it using our Greek brains. So what I want to try to do is help you train our audience or retrain the audience to deal with this topic Hebraically. 
then maybe we don't have to freak out so much about getting our thinking just right. And we certainly don't have to condemn those who disagree with us on, on, on small points. Yeah, exactly. What, what a, a concept that would uh, go a long way in, in bringing harmony and peace between uh, brothers and sisters in the church, wouldn't it? Oh, yes, definitely. You know, I've talked before about this idea of this sheepfold of ideas. You know, one way of thinking about ideas is you have a wall and one set of ideas is on one side and the other set is on the other side. OK, and they never mix. <laughs> But in a sheepfold of ideas, you you would take that in looking at, for instance, God's word, and you would you know you talk about a topic. Let's say I remember the one time when we were talking about um, my friend and I were talking about the idea of is Jesus God, okay, an equivalent in every way, or as the Son of God is He in a, a more subservient position in some ways? Mm-hmm. So we just went through. And we picked verses that would fit under either one of those. Mm. And we found verses that fit under either one of those, <laughs> you know? So we ended up with this whole line here and a whole line of, of, of uh, th- verses that would support either one of those ways of thinking. Now, in a wall idea, you have one or the other, which means you kind of have to ignore everything else that you see that disagrees with whatever side you've chosen to stand on. Yeah. And I think that's less healthy. I think it's less healthy. So if you think about the sheepfold of ideas, you have this uh, sheepfold. It's got maybe four pegs on the outside. Okay. It doesn't mean that every single idea, no matter how wild and crazy fits in there, but more ideas and more ways of thinking fit in there than what you would with the wall idea. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like if you're talking about the nature of God and you said, okay, well, God is a table. That's not going to fit in that sheepfold of ideas. Okay. (laughs) Or Jesus is a table, not going to fit, but Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God. Both of those can kind of fit in there. So you as a little sheep could stand in the middle of the sheepfold with your beliefs, or you could stand a little closer to one of the, uh, the pegs, you know, or somebody else, you know, as a little sheep can stand closer to the Southern end rather than the Northern end of the sheepfold, but you're still all in the sheepfold. And I Love that way of thinking. Mm. Um, it just allows us to get along a little bit better. Well, it, it should. It should. There's room. There's room for uh, you know a difference of opinion. For exactly. Sure. So yeah. in this topic, once saved, always saved. You can go if you have an opinion. Okay, a hard opinion about this. You can go online and 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 look at the internet, and you can find. Thousands and thousands of pages to support whatever it is you believe already going into it. Okay. And you can find all sorts of verses to support in the Bible to support whatever it is you believe. All right. So I'll give you that. But I think today what we want to do is try to use this sheepfold of ideas to help us understand this topic. Now, you know, some people say that the doctrine of once saved, always saved starts with John Calvin. So, you know, I did some research and stuff, and I find that it probably goes back significantly farther back into some of the early church fathers. This idea Mm -hmm. goes back further. Um, But if you know anything about Calvinism, you know that those who call themselves Calvinists believe in the doctrine of predestination. That before the foundation of the earth, God chose who would be saved and who wouldn't. And it also refers to a concept called election. Now, the doctrine of election holds that there's really no place for human choice 
in the matter. Mm. Now, I frankly don't really care what John Calvin thought. <laughs> Surprise. Okay. Not unless I can verify it in God's word. Right. Okay. That's the important thing. You know, so, so same with any other doctrines. You know, certainly the Bible talks about the elect. Okay. And we will talk about that in that concept of election a little bit later in this topic. Um, but that word appears in Isaiah's prophecies four times, and it appears in the, in the new Testament, the gospels, the writings of Paul. So it is something that we need to consider. Okay. Along the way and, and, and where maybe they got those ideas, uh, the Calvinists did, but you know, as I said, there's always verses to support whatever preconceived idea you already have. Yeah, and you mentioned Isaiah, and I couldn't help but think about a warning that Isaiah gave about that type of, uh, and I think you, you, you've you used the term cherry-picking in the past, um, of, of looking at Scripture that way. There There is a, this warning in Isaiah chapter 28, that, and, and many people will quote this from verse 10 and say, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. But if you look a little bit further, uh, when he repeats it in verse 13, and he says the same thing, uh, line upon line, little by little. And then he says that they might go fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. This is not a recommendation on how to look at the Torah and the, all of Scripture. It's a warning, don't do it this way. But the, the, what Isaiah is in agreement with what you sh- shared earlier, looking at the bigger picture, looking at the, the overall, uh, the, the, the whole work that we have here that we call our Bibles, our canon, canonized Bibles, and, and even some of the books that are not canonized. You look at the entire piece of work and you see themes, you see uh, principles, you see things that support, uh, maybe, uh, you know, won't support your, your preconceived ideas if you just look at scriptures individually, or may support if you, you know, something that you see individually, but you have to, you have to broaden uh, that support. That's a, a better exegesis by broadening, using scripture to interpret scripture. Yes, and that's exactly what I want to do now is to look at some of these bigger themes. You use mm-hmm. the word themes, okay? Mm-hmm. Biblical themes. Um, one Torah teacher I know calls them God principles. Mm-hmm. Great, big principles, okay, that are set up right from the very beginning. Patterns. And patterns is yeah. another good word, exactly. So talk about going, you know, right at the very beginning. I think we can start there and look for some patterns that help us understand the question that we have today. You know, this idea of once saved, always saved. Is that biblical? Uh, What does the Bible say about it? Let's just start with Adam. Okay. Can't go too much further back than Adam. Okay. (laughs) Adam, I think we all agree Adam was created in God's image. It says that, right? Mm -hmm. Adam walked with God in the garden which was symbolic of paradise. So he was with God in paradise. God spoke to him directly. Okay. We see that in the word. That's a pretty close relationship with God. I think everybody would agree. Yeah. It doesn't get much closer than that. So what did God warn Adam about? He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then on that day you will surely die. 
okay, that I concept of eating of the tree is that, okay, now you will know, you think you know better than God. Mm -hmm. Okay. You can determine what's good and what's evil rather than God determining that. Sounds familiar. Now we know that on the day that Adam ate of the tree, he didn't physically die. Correct. Okay. So did God lie or did Adam suffer a different kind of death? a spiritual death in, mm-hmm. in whatever way we can understand that. And and if so, what caused the spiritual death? I would say a few things. Pride. Mm-hmm. That the the essence of I think all the all original sin. sin. The original yeah. sin. <laughs> yes. Absolutely yeah, absolutely. Disobedience, okay, mm-hmm. which still related to pride. Okay, mm-hmm. and I think I know better. And then it's as if he made a purposeful decision to step away from God's blessings, okay? Mm. He knew better. Yeah. He had been told, okay? But it's almost like he, he made a decision that I'm going to um, do this knowing full well God had told him he would die. Yeah, that's, okay? a, that's the tragic pattern of mankind, you know, walking away from God and knowing knowing full well that that's, that's the better place to be and yes. yet still walking away. So Adam had a very special relationship with God, and then he chose to walk away, as mm. you just said. And God let him do it. Mm-hmm. God let him do it. He didn't keep him from it. Okay? He, he let him do it. And then the result was he was barred from that paradise. Mm. Okay? With the cherubs there and cherubim there with uh-huh. swords. Now, okay, you can say, okay, that's going back to the beginning. But, you know, it's interesting. We can even get a little bit of insight into pre-Adam and look to Satan, Mm-hmm. All right, because in Ezekiel 28, there's this there's a description of what most people agree is a description of Satan. And I, I just want to read through this a little bit. It says, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were the anointed guardian cherub. I placed you uh, and you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Mm. Okay, so there we have those elements again. Satan was with God. Yes. He was in paradise. He was in the garden. He was at one point blameless, mm-hmm. okay? Um, uh, no unrighteousness found in him until... Until he was Until there was yeah, unrighteousness yeah. found in him, yeah, okay? Yeah. So that was a deliberate choice made by Satan, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he had things pretty good. Yeah. Okay? And and so he made a choice. He was cast out, I'd say, for the same reasons. Uh, pride, just like Adam. Disobedience, purposeful disobedience, and a decision to step away from God's blessing. Yeah, it, it is tragic when you think about it. And But this is, our, this is the God we serve. He's given us a choice and the power to choose. Exactly. So that's, that is what Satan did, is he made a choice to walk away. God let him do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think we have to put this idea of having a special relationship with God that's then severed by deliberate 
disobedience. And we have to put that into our sheepfold of ideas. It has to belong there. It, it, yeah, it I, think, I think this discussion couldn't exist without it. And, you know, we see other examples in our word there. I think that you could uh, look at the uh, situation with Saul. Mm-hmm. And and see a similar kind of idea that he had a spirit of the Lord, and then he was uh, given an alternative spirit of the Lord yeah, after it was, disobedience. Yeah, he was tormented. He had this is this is a case where God actually places His spirit within uh, His King to operate as His um, authority on the earth, as His agent mm-hmm. on the earth, and and Saul. Uh, acted in such a way with disobedience that he it was removed, it, that spirit was removed from him. I truly believe that that was what David was f- fearing when he wrote Psalm fifty one, when he said, "Don't take your spirit away from me." I think I've mentioned that before, because mm-hmm. um, he witnessed the torment that Saul went through. But he was God's man, and then he anointed? wasn't. He chose he chose to disobey. Yeah, he yes, was anointed. He was, he was anointed, anointed king. specifically. Yes, don't touch my anointed. You know, this is what David. No, knew not to not to kill um Saul when he had the opportunity because he was God's anointed. So he knew it and and he was and then he wasn't. Um I think we there's probably That's interesting. He was and then, and then he wasn't. Exactly. <laughs> we but I think that's that's what we're talking about here. Exactly. The, the the possibility of that happening. It happened to Adam, it happened to Satan, of course. Mm-hmm. It happened to Saul. Um it may, I mean this could be a, a question for another day, but it may have happened to Solomon. We don't know the end of fate of Solomon when he began to allow his wives to worship false gods. Um, I don't know. I, I, that one, again, that's a discussion for another day. But uh, here, the man with all the wisdom, you know, the, the greatest, the, the most wise man in all the world as we know him, and yet he still chose poorly at the end. He ended poorly. And it was a choice. And it was a choice. It was a choice. I think the same thing. I mean, do you think we can put um, Judas? Absolutely. I know we were talking to to Torah and and, um, and Tanakh, but if we go to the Brichadashah, we have the case of Judas. Judas walked with Yeshua. He was one of the chosen. And uh, sadly, we know his end end was tragic also because he chose poorly. Mm. Wow. You know, so I think all of this has to be um, in this sheepfold of ideas. We cannot ignore it. It's there in our Older Testament. It's in the Brit Hadashah. It's, you know, so it's there. Just let it stew in there for a little while, okay? (laughs) We're going to add more things to this pot, okay? Yes, we are. Um, You know, the next thing I want to look at is something that most Christians don't have any idea or concept of because they don't spend a lot lot of time studying, particularly the book of Leviticus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, But the book of Leviticus um, and other um, uh, books in the, in the older Testament talk about an idea of being cut off. Mm. Caret is the word they use to be cut off. And numbers 15 kind of addresses this issue uh, by talking about, Um, this idea of unintentional and intentional sin. Now, 
I remember learning about this. I learned so much from uh, Tom Bradford mm-hmm. in, his, in the Torah class that I, I attended because I had never heard of a concept of intentional and unintentional sin, although I understand it. Um, yeah. But so he teaches that un, un, unintentional sin is when someone commits a violation of one of God's commandments, but they didn't intend to. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right. They may not have even known that they committed a violation. Okay. That's possible. Apparently, we all break laws every day in the United States and we don't know about it, right? Because there's so many you know, tax yeah. laws and sure, all of this that sure. we just don't know about. So for unintentional sin, the Torah prescribes a series of sacrifices. But then in Numbers 15, it addresses intentional sin. And often the Bible will refer to this intentional kind of sin as high-handed. Mm. Okay, that's an interesting phrase, high-handed sin. And it denotes um, that which the Lord considers brazen. Mm. Okay. Shocking. Brazen. Okay. Like, you know better, but you do it anyway. Exactly. So numbers 1530 says specifically, but the person who does wrong defiantly, whether he's a native or a stranger, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Since he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Mm. When I read that just now, Gary, I'm looking, he despised the word of the Lord. Okay. Adam did that. He had a word from the Lord Mm -hmm. and he broke a commandment, right? And he was cut off. That to me explains what happened. There's your pattern setting up, isn't it? And, And the word of God supporting it. Exactly. So, you know, it's not that there's no sacrifice of atonement it, that is um, it's not that no sacrifice of atonement is prescribed for the one who acts defiantly um, what's happening with this type of sin there's no sacrifice notice that there's no sacrifice okay that makes up for this hmm interesting okay yeah. just makes you think a little bit it okay um, so it almost looks like there's no mercy, no, no, it's only divine retribution. Boy, that's, that's a concept that most Christians don't think about. No, because what, what you will, most times you will hear is that, uh, you, you know, nothing, nothing is beyond what Yeshua can do, yet we see Yeshua himself in the Brechadashah saying things like, Get away from me! I never knew you. Right. Wow. Well, that's that's right. that seems harsh, but there is a point of no return. Uh, we talked about it with Romans and the idea of a reprobate mind. Uh, right. There, there is a point of no return. The unpardonable sin. We don't understand that fully. I don't know if anybody really does, right. but I surely don't want to test that. No, one, I don't those want to. Waters. T- I won't go anywhere near that. <laughs> yeah. You know. So this idea of being cut off in the um, in the old. Testament, it would be, it was understood as a divine punishment. Okay. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily stoning from the rest of the community or something like that. It was a divine judgment on that person. Could have meant dying young, could be that, dying childless. Now that was a great fear. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the, for people in the old Testament. Okay. That your line did not continue. Mm -hmm. Um, it could be poor health. It, it could be a number of different things. But the key was um, the guilty party kind of walked around with that judgment of divine retribution on his head at all times with no remedy for it. And he didn't know when that 
eternal shoe might fall, as Tom mm-hmm. Bradford said. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So something, there's something really dire in that. We don't know exactly what it is. Now, over the centuries, this idea of karet being cut off, the rabbis looked at it in different ways. But by the 12th century, it was held that karet included the possible uh, death of the soul. Mm. Okay. So that a a spiritual death. Yeah. Okay. That was included in this mix of ideas of what Karet meant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even centuries and centuries ago. Okay. Even before Christianity. Okay. Mm-hmm. It even started. So, um, so that idea in modern Judaism often gets translated into excommunication. I think the church has that same concept. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, no matter what, we get this idea of being cut off is very serious. Of course. Okay. It only applied to the most high-handed, offensive, deliberate acts against God. Mm-hmm. Okay. So your everyday, um, I committed a sin, doesn't fall into this category. No, it is something no, very, not. very different. Right. Okay. Some people say, is this what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Mm. Okay. And that idea. Th- that's, see, that's the other example that I was thinking of, uh, you know, that we, we do have evidence. There is a pattern of that concept here. I, again, I don't know if we fully can wrap our minds around that, where that line is, but why would you even want to, right. you know, even tempt, tempt God in that way? Well, you know, Hebrews 10, 26 is where we actually see in our, in our Brit Hadashah, we see this concept. It says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, mm. but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's Hebrews ten twenty six. Yeah, you're you're reading this from the Word. This is not our opinion. Ex- for those for those who are sitting back listening and saying, "Wait a minute," you know, I didn't. I, this this doesn't sound right to me. This is the Word of God, not our idea. It seems to me that this is a New Testament rendition of the Old Testament idea of a high-handed sin. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, 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 what, what, what we're saying here is that we see in this writing of Paul that the concept of, a, of deliberate versus unintentional sins and their consequences were alive and well in Christ's day. Yes. Okay, they, they, people got that. And this passage in Hebrews is a direct reference to those concepts, and it's clear that they're applying to believers, Jew or Gentile. Paul is not talking to pagans here. No, no, no. no, He's talking to the Hebrews. It's the book of Hebrews. Uh (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The the writer of Hebrews, yes, it's definitely, these are concepts uh, that, that they felt that they should understand. Yes, yes, that believers. Okay. He was talking to believing Jews and Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he felt it was important enough to share that. Mm Mm-hmm. I, and I would guess that there's a number of people in our audience have never even read that like like that. No, you know? probably not. Again, because when we hear we hear about um, a, a Christian form of salvation, it's one that you you know there's nothing that you could have ever ever do 
that would, would keep you from the, the mercy of God. Well, I think that that is true when it comes to repentance, but then willfully continuing to sin is what we're talking about here. And that's a big difference. So we have to understand that fully. I hope we're, we're being clear. Right. Yeah. I think that no matter what, we have to put this idea of being cut off into our sheepfold. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, if we don't, we're deliberately ignoring Old Testament and New Testament mm-hmm. references yes. to it. Patterns. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The next ideas that I want to throw into this sheepfold <laughs> is the idea of covenant. It, this idea is so critical in understanding our relationship to Christ and understanding Israel's relationship to Yehovah. It's it's so critical that we have an understanding of covenant. Oh yes, yes, I. Wow. You know, I whenever we bring the word up covenant, I can remember talking about this at length because there is such confusion, Kathy, when it comes to covenants. In fact, most most in the Christian world, and I, I'll just I'll throw that out there. I feel strongly that it is most in the Christian world uh, believe that you have a new covenant and an old covenant. And you know, everything from the right of Matthew, including Matthew and to the right, is the new covenant. And everything uh, to the left of Matthew is the old covenant. And that is not correct. That is poor exegesis. That is, uh, in some cases, laziness, but in other cases, just ignorance. Um, people are just unaware. And the the fact is there are at least four very pertinent covenants that we need to talk about and then distinguish between them and understand how they are, how they're similar and how they are different. And their differences is huge because it starts with the unconditional covenant with Abraham. This, this, this covenant is, is the foundation of everything that we will, we will ever be. You know, the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, God chooses a man. He is, it is the, the Hebrew word, chen, is where we get the word grace, is God stooping down, a, a superior stooping down to an inferior and choosing a man. And he chose Abraham. And he, he chose him as a man who would become a people, who would become a nation, where all the things that we've been discussing all through, throughout all of these podcasts and all the Word of God comes from. This, this, is, this is a story of a people. It's a story of a nation, the, the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And so in order to get this plan of salvation, world redemption, into motion, he chooses Abraham, he makes a covenant with him, and that covenant is un conditional and eternal, meaning it has no end. So let's focus first on this unconditional. Why, why is that important? Well, because we know that in, in the, uh, there is punishment for disobedience to God's word. So God could not, he did not any way, shape or form, uh, did he want this covenant broken? So he swore by himself. And again, you, talk, you were in Hebrews a moment ago, Hebrews 6, verse 17 and 18. It says that because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by his own name. And because of that oath and because it was God who can't lie, those two immutable things, that this covenant still stands today. God put 
Abraham to sleep, Genesis 15, 12, while his name was still Abram, he puts him to sleep. And then we have this, this imagery of God passing through the animals that were cut by Abraham. They're cutting covenant, the two pieces of the animals, this torch or this flame passes through the covenant, and it's God alone making the promise and swearing on his own name. Why? Because again, there's, there, there had to be no way that this covenant could be broken. Nothing Abraham nor his descendants could ever do would break this covenant. And what did he say in this covenant? I will be God to you. Remember, he's God no matter what, but he's God to us and his people through covenant. So he will be God to you, and I will give you a land, and to you and your descendants after you, for an everlasting covenant. So there you have, in a nutshell, uh, an eternal, everlasting, unconditional covenant, which is part of we are, which is found in the Tanakh, what the, the most of the world calls the Old, Old Testament. Now, is that the entire Old Covenant? Of course not. There's more. There's so much more. So that is an individual covenant found in the Tanakh, or what some call the Old Covenant or Old Testament. But not the only covenant. But not the only covenant. Because then what's the next covenant added to that was when Israel now has incubated, so to speak, in Egypt. You know, the sons of Jacob go to go to Egypt and they become Israel, the nation. They come out of Egypt and God meets them at the mountain and he makes another covenant with them. This time he makes a covenant with with instructions, with what we call law, but instructions on, on how to live together as a nation. We call this the Mosaic Covenant, and this covenant had conditions, and in, and they're very, very clearly spelled out in um, Deuteronomy chapter 28, those conditions of obedience. There's, there's blessings for obedience, and there's curses for disobedience, and I'll just, I'm just going to go to Deuteronomy 28 real quick and just show you the distinction there in, uh, let's see, let's get to verse... Uh, uh, 15 is when it come to pass if you obey. It says, but it come to pass if you, if you do, oh, wait a minute. Let's, let's get the obey part first. <laughs> Verse tw- chapter more 28. <laughs> yeah, more pleasant. Chapter 28 says, it, it will come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord to observe carefully all his commandments, which I, I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And then goes on to list this beautiful list of blessings. Then you get to verse 15, which I started to read a moment ago, and it says, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all these commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. That's chapter 20, Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. And then it goes on to list all of the curses that, you know, that, you know, go to and include being scattered from the land. That's important because people wonder, well, wait a minute, if God made this eternal covenant, why is it that they're, they're not in the land? Well, that's, that's important to understand the distinction between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. Mosaic covenant, had lots of conditions, and he did scatter them. Twice they've been scattered from the land. We're witnessing the second return today, which we're very much involved in, and we see that uh, God's word being fulfilled. Ezekiel 36 talks about God 
worried about his own reputation. He said, it's not for your sake, Israel, that I do this, speaking of regathering them, but for my holy name's sake, I will regather you to the land. And there are hundreds of scriptures that talk about the regathering of the land to the land in the latter days. So quickly, I'll just mention the other two covenants that we find all in the Tanakh, not in the what the world calls the New Testament or the Brechadashah. All four pertinent covenants are found in the Tanakh, what, again, what we call the Old Testament. It is the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and then you see a uh, Davidic covenant, a promise that God would have someone from the line of David on the throne forever. And so, so you see, that is not in, we don't see a king over Israel today. Uh, we don't see that God made this eternal promise to uh, Abraham, but we can witness the fulfillment of the, the regathering because of that promise. We know that they were scattered because of the conditions set in the Mosaic Covenant, and one day we will see uh, the king return to fulfill the Davidic Covenant. So what's the, the, the final and fourth covenant that I want to talk about? The renewing of the Mosaic Covenant. We, we know it as the New Covenant, but we read in Jeremiah 31 the words of, of um, God speaking to Israel about that renewing process. And let me read that for a moment here when it says, uh, it speaks of the covenant that he's addressing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And the Hebrew word there is more, uh, it was better translated, renewed covenant. I think that's much clearer. Yes, with the, with the, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And there, so you see who is addressing here. This is the covenant that was made with Abraham, because he says, not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers in the day that I took um, um, took them by the hand, led them out of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke. Okay, so he's addressing the, the Mosaic covenant, which they broke, because it was the conditional covenant. And he says, but this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my Torah or law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, I know I went through that really, really quick, and we could probably have done an entire podcast on that, but it's important to understand the distinction between these four covenants. Unconditional Abrahamic covenant, a covenant of promise. The Davidic covenant was a covenant of promise. The Mosaic covenant was a covenant of law or instruction. The renewed covenant is a covenant of law or instruction. You see the difference? This, this time, instead of on tablets of stone, it will be written on the hearts of his people. Those four covenants fully understood will change your life when it comes to interpreting the things that we discuss on this podcast. Yes, and it's and particularly what we're talking about in this particular pod, this this podcast. So after this break, I want to go back, continuing down this line of covenant, mm -hmm. but get a little more specific uh, because of an analogy that that God uses that Yesh that that Yeshua uses, and that's that uh, the marriage covenant. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the marriage covenant right after this message. Okay, welcome back. 
So Gary just gave us um, a, um, a definition, an explanation of covenant. And yes, I agree. We probably should go do another one that's just about covenant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went through that very quickly, and that might be a hard one for people to, to grasp in that short of time. But I think it's necessary to understand because I think the idea of covenant has to go into our sheepfold of ideas uh, that we're using for understanding this topic. I don't think we can understand scripture, period, without understanding the covenants. Yes. So so getting to this topic, we I don't think we even have a shot at it. <laughs> but now we're going to go a little more in detail in covenant, the idea of covenant, because, you know, the Bible uses the analogy of a marriage covenant to illustrate the relationship between Christ and an individual member or his bride. It also kind of uses it as uh, Christ and the church as a, as a whole, as a community, but it's also used as individual. So this idea of a groom, a bride and a groom. Yeah. Okay. We all know that. Yeah. It's, it's imagery of of a relationship that God has with his people. Right. Ephesians 531 says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So right there, Paul is saying that this relationship that Christ has with the church and with individual believers is is so much bigger. I think that's what you're alluding at. It's, it's built on the idea of covenant. That everything is built on the idea of covenant. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, we talked last week about this idea. Yeshua didn't come in a just in a bubble. It, you know, it's some period of time just randomly to the earth. No, this was all about this progressing through God's covenant promise to to bring about restoration to the world. Right. And there was it was set up thousands of years prior. So the so the concept of covenant is critical, but I think if we start to look at this Christian word of salvation, okay, let's look at it in terms of covenant, okay, mm-hmm. in terms of covenant relationships, then I think we can understand uh, what we've got here a little bit better. Um, If our salvation is a contractual covenant relationship, particularly like the one, the Mosaic covenant, okay, it's a conditional covenant, right? Mm -hmm. But it's held, it's held together with more than just intellectual belief in something. Okay. Covenant's not held together by belief, right? Uh, I believe I'm married. That's not what's holding a covenant no, together. No, there better be more, right? There better be more. You know more. that old joke about the guy who says, you know, the wife says, you know, you never tell me you love me anymore. And he says, I told you I loved you on the day we were married. If that changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> well, that's not going to keep a marriage together <laughs> if there's no action, if there's no, exactly. nur- nur- you know, nurturing that relationship. Exactly. So if you're married, you don't. You don't wonder, okay, all of those who are married in our audience and those who, you know, have parents who are married. They don't wonder from day to day whether or not you're married, okay? Mm-hmm. A marriage is held together um, by our knowledge of the covenant we entered into and the fact that it must be maintained, mm-hmm. okay? Um, you know, when we talk about this idea of just a belief, you know, even the demons believe that right. God is and who, who God is and who, who, who Yeshua was, right. okay? They knew that. So it wasn't, it was not just belief no, it's, it's that so was much holding more on, than that. you know? So, 
Faith is a starting point for two parties to agree to engage in holy matrimony and preserve themselves to love only each other until the covenant is nullified through death. Mm -hmm. It's not just faith that keeps the marriage. It's faithfulness. Faithfulness. Okay. Imuna. The Hebrew word for faith is a, it's is a verb. It's faithfulness. Once again, going back to the idea of, it's, of the uh, Greek versus Hebrew, Hebrew is about doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is all tying in. Covenant is about doing, okay? Right. Um, but it's faithfulness, the daily commitment to the covenant that you've made. That's what keeps a marriage, you right. know? If you're lawfully married, it's not a question of faith in your head as to whether or not you're married. It is a matter of consensual contract that lawfully validates the marriage. The partnership is recognized by everybody. Mm -hmm. You know that. You is recognized by a state, okay, that you get married in. It's recognized by all your family and friends who attend the, the wedding ceremony. It's recognized by, uh, by heaven. Mm -hmm. Everybody recognizes that you've entered into a covenant agreement. That's right. I, I remember, uh, I mean, that every time I've performed a marriage ceremony, I, I stress that, uh, you know, as the most important understanding that you're making a covenant before God and a covenant with each other. And I, and, and I think that that's, if, if everybody would understand that and go into a marriage with that commitment and then nurture it along the way. I mean, what's, what's most important when you said all these people recognize the marriage? Well, the two parties that got married better recognize that. The, you know that they better better understand that this is a commitment they've made to each other for life and and nurture it and work on it so i think it's important you know we we get that as mm -hmm. people who are married or who've witnessed a, a marriage or, or whatever we understand how a marriage covenant works okay mm -hmm. it's supposed to work at least but you know if we think about our relationship with christ it might be a paradigm shift for a lot of christians to think of that in terms of covenant okay mm -hmm. that that's a covenant too and we agree we agree to enter into this covenant with christ okay and in essence, this is also what Israel did at the foot of Mount Sinai when um, they got Torah and the people said, everything you say we will do. That's right. That's very similar to saying, I do. I do. Yes, <laughs> okay? that very much so. <laughs> it's like, I do. Okay. You, you, the, 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 the pastor, like you've said, has just said all of these things that someone has to agree that mm -hmm. they're going to do mm -hmm. in marriage till death do us part. Right. Right. And each um, a person in the covenant makes that agreement. Yeah, I think it's a it's a beautiful picture, and it's a, it's the way that God viewed His relationship with His people. Um, you know, the prophet Jeremiah speaks in those terms when he talked about Israel uh, disobeying and becoming a, a, a he called he called Israel an adulterous woman. You know, chasing you know being a harlot, chasing after other gods was was like being a harlot and chasing after other men. Um, but yet by the end, uh, later on in Jeremiah, we, we look in 31, where I was reading a moment ago about the renewing of the covenant, uh, the same Jeremiah who just had been calling Israel a harlot and an adulterous woman, then turns around and says this, uh, and the Lord appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with kindness, I have drawn you again. I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin 
Israel. Isn't that no beautiful? No longer an adulteress. Right, right. Wow. So there's, there, is, there is room for restoration in returning and making Teshuvah, returning to God, and, and, and he will take you back. He'll take you back, but he'll let you walk away, as we yes, learned with Adam yes, and, and, um, and with Satan and with Judas. You know, a lot of times people quote um, uh, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 13, and it's actually a quote that references back to Deuteronomy 31. Okay, nothing new <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in, in the New Testament. And it says, never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. This is this is God. This is Yeshua saying, I'm keeping my end of the covenant. That's right. Okay. I'm keeping my end. And we firmly hold on to that, that Christ will never break his end of the covenant. Okay. The question is, are we we going to break it? Okay. He's not going to let go. No. All right. But are we the adulterous Israel that, that, that walks away from this covenant? Um, you know, you don't have to, in a marriage, you don't worry about like losing your marriage, but you can get out of this marriage with a divorce. Mm-hmm. Okay. We understand what divorce is, unfortunately. unfortunately okay. We yeah, get, yeah. Okay. You know, and um, in my, in my book, Declaring the End from the uh, Beginning, I, I, I was just going to read a paragraph from that because I was talking about this topic of once saved, always saved. And I said, once a woman is married, she can break the marriage covenant through divorce. Of course, this applies to a man too. Mm-hmm. Okay. She can make a conscious decision that she no longer wants to remain in a covenant relationship with her spouse. Perhaps she simply decides that she no longer wants to stay connected to just one man, but wants to enter into relationships with other men. Perhaps she might purposely choose to engage in an intimate relationship with another man, thereby nullifying the covenant with her adulterous behavior. While she can surely repent of this behavior and return to her espoused mate, she can just as easily choose to remain outside her original marriage covenant. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, I think I think the uh, the fear for many who who want to hold on to the idea, and I know we're going to have to talk about it in the next podcast more about this. Once saved, always saved. The fear I think is somehow that God is not faithful, or you're declaring that God is not faithful if you say that that's not true. When in fact you just pointed out He's faithful. It's we who are the ones who walk away. As the adulterous woman, we were to be the ones walking away, not Him. You know, you talked about conditional and unconditional covenants. What we've got in a marriage covenant is a conditional covenant. Mm -hmm. Okay. And each party has conditions that they have to maintain to to maintain this relationship and this covenant. Okay. So it's a little different. It's different than the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Although I guess in some ways the, the, you know, in the Abrahamic covenant, God said, okay, I won't walk away. Yes. But in a marriage Anybody could walk, either partner Mm -hmm. could walk away, okay? Um, But for God's part in our salvation relationship, he's like, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I'm I'm staying through thick and thin till, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. uh, he's going to be there. So I think if we, if our relationship with Christ is a covenant relationship, it should work like these other conditional covenants. It's breakable. Mm. It's really not a difficult concept for us to grasp. You know, that's why God's always, he's always used basic analogies from real life to help us understand 
more difficult spiritual concepts. Yeah. Okay. And this real life analogy from marriage is, is exactly that. We get it in marriage. We can, we can get it. We can see it. And I think where, what I'd like to concentrate on when we, we come back and follow up on this again, is that idea. When you think of a marriage and you think of a couple, what do you see when they walk down the aisle together after the, the marriage ceremony? That's this, the first steps of many. They're going to walk together. And I think that's what I'd like to focus on when we when we readdress this this idea of it being a walk. It's you. They didn't. It just didn't just end when they no, said I starts. do. It just started. <laughs> exactly. You know, one thing I want to address quickly though before we finish here is there's a common argument um, that. Uh, the only way a person can lose their salvation is if they didn't really have it in the first place. Mm. So in essence, there's like these pretenders out there who are fooling themselves and others into thinking that they're saved when they really aren't. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't pretenders. In fact, you could argue in Matthew 7, 23, that these are a group of people who never had a relationship with Christ. Okay. And he says, then will I declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of of lawlessness, Torahlessness. Yeah. Okay. But I, that is a different group of people, Gary. That's a group of people who never had the relationship in the first place. I don't think there's anything in everything we've been talking about in covenant that would lead us to believe that, um, that that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who have been in relationship, not a group of pretenders. Those are addressed separately. Yeah, they okay? are, but I, I wouldn't even use Matthew seven. If I were, if I were trying to make this case, if you know, to those who are, trying to use it because they're, they're doing all the things that they said they were doing in his name. Um, you, could they be pretenders? I suppose, but they're claiming that they were doing this, uh, feeling that they were doing the right thing, right, right. but somehow completely misguided. And I, I think I, my, my belief is because, and, and Yeshua gives us the answer, who practice lawlessness, Torah lessness. I knew you could not say that. <laughs> I, I fully believe that. I think that we've created a, you know, and this again sound, may sound very controversial, but there is a false religion out there, a false Christianity uh, that, uh, again, could be the topic of many podcasts. Yes, yes, abs- yes, yeah. definitely. You know, I, I think what I'm trying to say in that is I think we've got different groups of people here, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's critical that we go back to the concept of covenant and, and and as we understand our relationship with Christ, a covenant, you are in covenant and then you break covenant. Okay. You, you can't break a covenant that you weren't in, in the first place. That's right. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I, so I think that's what's important. It's like, if you didn't have a marriage, you don't have to get a divorce. Well, good point. Okay. You know, but if <laughs> yeah. you had the marriage and you separate, okay, now you get the divorce. You know, we have much more to consider as we dive into this controversial concept of once saved, always saved. But, as I, but like I said at the beginning, I don't think we can get a firm grasp on this concept or lots of other concepts mm-hmm. concepts without looking at it from a big picture point of view. We can't choose a Bible verse here or there as we would choose what we want to eat off of a buffet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we have to taste and chew on everything on the buffet, you know, and that way, that might be the only way we can determine if this buffet is one we want to return to or recommend to others. 
I'll try a little bit of everything. You know, it's too important a topic to just sit back and trust what one man or one denomination has been saying about it. We have to dive into the word in its entirety. Of course, we will do the best we can in a few podcasts. Yeah, because I think we barely scratched the surface <laughs> exactly. today. But but listening to our podcast audience, it's no substitute for you reading the word for yourself. Not just individual Bible verses out of context. You must eat from the entire buffet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in our next podcast, we're going to look at the concept of election. We're going to look at this concept that Gary uh, mentioned too about this ongoing walk with the Lord and what that actually looks like and means. Um, And then we'll get back to the Bible verses that actually started this conversation, (laughs) which was the olive tree of Israel. (laughs) But until then, remember what the psalmist said, those who love your Torah have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Shalom, everyone. Shalom. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time on Torah Talk.